Chapter 8 of A Woman's Way Through Unknown Labrador by Mina Benson Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 Scaring the Guides. I awoke on Friday at 2.30 a.m. The morning was clear as diamonds, and from the open front of my tent I could see the eastern sky. It glowed deep red gold, and I lay watching it. An hour later the sun appeared over the hills, touching the peak of my tent with its light, and I got up to look out. The mists had gathered on our little lake, and away in the distance hung white over the river. Gilbert was busy getting wood and preparing the breakfast. Soon I heard him at the door of the men's tent, saying, All aboard. Any mosquitoes this morning, Gilbert? Not a one. Too cold. By garge, but it's cold this morning. I went down to the lake and tried to wash, but I had to lave off. It was too cold. Shortly I heard them at the fire. The click of the cups told me that they were taking a little tea into Bennock before starting to carry. Then all was quiet, and one load had gone forward to the next lake, nearly a half mile ahead. When all but the camp stuff had been taken forward, we had breakfast, and by 7 a.m. we were in the canoes. Our course led us south through two little lakes, with a portage between, for something more than two miles. Here the second lake bent away to the southeast, and we landed on our right at the foot of a low, moss-covered ridge. Beyond this we hoped to see the river. As we climbed, new heights appeared before us and it proved to be about three-quarters of a mile to the top, from which the ridge dropped abruptly on the west, and at its foot was a long, narrow lake. At first I thought it was the river, but when it became clear that it was not, my heart sank a little. Had we been wrong, after all? Had the river bent away to the north instead of the south, as we supposed? Job and Gilbert outstripped us in the climb, and now we saw them disappearing across a valley on our left in the direction of a high hill further south, and we followed them. As before, new heights kept appearing as we went up, and when the real summit came in view, we could see Job and Gilbert sitting on its smooth and rounded top, looking away westward. How I wondered what they had found. When we came up with them, there, to the west, around the south end of the opposite ridge, we could see the river flowing dark and deep as before. Above, to the southwest, were two heavy falls, and at the head of the upper and larger one, the river widened. There were several islands, and it looked as if we might be coming to the expansions near the upper part of the river. One lake beside that at the foot of the mountain would make the portage route an easy and good one. The view from the mountain top was magnificent in all directions. To the north, the hills lay east and west in low, regular ridges, well covered with green woods, and thirty miles away, on a few of the highest of them, there were great patches of snow lying. East and west and south were the more irregular hills, and everywhere among them were the lakes. It was very fine, but to my great regret I had left my Kodak in the canoe. The green woods interested Gilbert, who was looking for new trapping grounds for himself and Donald Blake. We had come more than fifty miles from Seal Lake, the limit of his present trapping grounds, and he quite seriously considered the question of extending his path up to those hills the following winter. Turning to George, I said, Why shouldn't I come up here after dinner with my Kodaks and take some pictures while you men are making the portage? The walking is not rough, and I couldn't possibly lose my way if I tried. He looked quite serious about it for a moment and then said, Well, I guess you might. Slipping down the south end of the hill a little way to see that there were no rough places where I should be in danger of falling going down, he returned, and with the manner of one who was making a great concession, said again, I guess you can come up here this afternoon. You could go down this way and meet us at this end of the lake. You will be able to see when we come along in the canoes. I was delighted, and after a half hour on the hilltop we started back directly towards the canoes. It was very hot among the lower and more sheltered sand hills, and for a long time there was no running water to be found, but when we did come upon a tiny stream crossing the way, hats were quickly turned into drinking cups for one long, satisfying drink. The miles back to camp had always a way of drawing themselves out twice the usual length. George insisted that it was but two miles to the canoes, but to me it seemed quite four. Lunch over, we rested a little, 
and then armed with two Kodaks, notebooks, revolver and cartridges, bowie knife, barometer and compass, I was ready for my climb. Before starting, George said, I think you had better take your rubber shirt. It is going to rain this afternoon. I looked at the sky. It was beautiful, with numbers of silvery clouds floating lazily over the hills. It didn't look like rain to me, and I had something of a load as it was. I said, No, I don't think I shall. I should rather not have any more to carry. It is not going to rain. George said no more, and we started. At the little bay reaching in at the foot of the mountain, we parted, and I went on up the hill. It seemed beautiful to be going off without a guard, and to think of spending an hour or two upon the hilltop, quite alone, with a glorious sky above, and the beautiful hills and lakes and streams in all directions. I should be able to get some characteristic photographs, and it was a perfect day for taking them. No time was wasted on the way, and the two hours proved all I had hoped. The canoes did not come, however, and knowing that the men must have had ample time to make the portage, I decided to go down to the lake. Certainly by the time I reached it, they too would be there, for a thunder shower was coming. When only a little way from the summit, I looked down into the valley, and there, quite near where I was to meet the men, I saw something, which looked like a huge brown bear, lying down. I stopped and watched it for a while, hardly knowing what to do. I had been deceived often, but this was not a mere black spot. It had definite shape and color. Though I knew but little about the habits of bears, it did not seem the thing one would expect of a bear to be lying there on the moss and rocks at that time of day. Still, I did not know. Finally, I concluded that the quickest way to settle the question was to go and see. I had my revolver, and if it proved a real bear, I would not this time aim any place, just at the bear. I hurried on, trying to keep the disturbing object in sight, but I could not. When the valley was reached, it was nowhere to be seen, and I concluded I had again been deceived. The storm had now come on, and there was still no sign of the canoes. I decided that if I must be drenched and devoured, for the flies were fearful, I might as well be doing something interesting. I set off for the ridge on the further side of the lake with something of the feeling a child has who runs away from home, for it had been constantly impressed upon me that I must never go away alone, and I recognized the justice of the demand, but I meant to be careful, and probably should not go very far. Wading across the brook, which drains the lake to the river, I climbed up the ridge and was delighted to get a fine view of the falls. I went on to the top, but still there was no sign of the canoes, and I walked northward along the ridge. It was like a great mound of rock set down on the surface of the earth, its top rounded and smooth and bare, while on either side it dropped abruptly almost to the level of the lake, ending in a precipice a mile from where I had climbed it. When I reached its northern end, I could see the little bay to which the men had carried the outfit. Imagine my astonishment when, looking across, I saw the two canoes turned upside down over the stuff to keep it dry, and the men around a fire drinking tea. I was not a little annoyed to find that they were quite so ready to leave me alone in the thunderstorm, knowing that I had nothing to protect me, till suddenly I remembered how I had been advised to take my rubber shirt, and then I thought I understood. I was to have a lesson in taking good advice when I could get it. I laughed a little and thought, oh, I know something better than that. This afternoon I shall go where I like and do what I please, like the little fly, and have one good time. Taking out my revolver, I fired two shots to let them know where I was, and started back along the top of the ridge to look for a place to climb down. There was a still higher ridge between me and the river, and I knew that from it I could see more. I stopped to take a photograph of a great boulder set up on top of some smaller rocks, and while doing so heard two rifle shots from the other shore. Evidently they had just discovered where I was. I fired once more in reply, and then disappeared down the other side of the mountain. It was steep, and I laughed to think how terrified they would be if they could see me, but this afternoon I had thrown off restraint. I chose the first place where descent was possible, and let myself down along a rather wide crevice where some earth had gathered and a few bushes were growing. I went fast, too, for I meant to go just as far as I could before I was rounded up and brought into camp. Between the two ridges was a bog, and I tried to cross it to save time, but it threatened to let me in too deep, and I had to give it up and go round. 
I was only a little way up on the other hill when there came the sound of two rifle shots from the lower end of the lake. Evidently the discovery of my whereabouts had aroused very spirited movement. On I went, faster than ever. The flies were desperately thick, and I kept a piece of spruce bough going constantly over my face and neck to keep them from devouring me bodily. I could feel my ears and neck wet and sticky with blood, for some of the bites bleed a good deal. Still, what did flies matter when you were free? That afternoon I should go just as far as I thought I could and get back to camp by dark. To my disappointment, when I reached the top of the ridge I could still not see the river, for it disappeared between high rocky banks and could only be seen by walking close to the edge. I decided to go along the ridge as far as I could, and then, slipping down to the river, to return to camp that way. About two miles out on the ridge I sat down to rest and look about a little. The rain passed, and a fine breeze put the flies to rout at this highest point. I had been seated there but a little while when, looking back, I saw one of the men, which proved to be George, running as if for life along the top of the ridge where they had first seen me. I could just make him out against the sky. Then he disappeared. I could not tell where. After a time I began to hear shots. The sounds were very faint, but followed each other in quick succession. I laughed and thought I knew what was happening where they came from. The shots seemed to come from the ridge I was on, but for some time I could not see anyone. Finally I caught sight of one of the men. He was waving his arms about wildly, and I could hear very faintly the sound of shouting. Then another figure appeared, and they started running towards me. Suddenly I became frightened. Perhaps all the excitement was not on my account after all, and I began to wonder if something dreadful had happened. Had anyone been hurt or drowned? I started quickly towards them, but as soon as they were near enough for me to see their faces plainly, I knew that I had been the sole cause of the trouble. It was George and Job. The perspiration was dripping from their faces, which were pale and filled with an expression, the funniest mixture of indignant resentment, anxiety, and relief that could possibly be imagined. When they came up I smiled at them, but there was not any answering smile. Then George began to remonstrate with me. He stood with folded arms and serious, reproachful face and said, Well, I guess you've very near done it this time. Very near done what? I asked. Why, you've just about had us crazy. Had you crazy? What about? Why, we thought you were lost. Didn't you see me over there on that ridge when I fired those shots? Yes, we did, and when we got to the other end of the lake we fired two shots, and we thought you would come back then. I went up the ridge to meet you, and when I saw you were not there I was sure you went down to the rapids. Then I ran down there, and when I did not find you there I thought you either fell on that rapid or got lost. But I promised not to go to that rapid. Yes, I know you did, but I thought when you went up there on that mountain maybe you would go to that rapid anyway. Well, I said... When I got to the end of the lake and saw you were not coming, and the thunderstorm was coming on, and the flies were so bad, I thought I might as well be doing something nice while the storm was wetting me and the flies were eating me. Yes, that is just what we said. Who would ever think of your going up there in that storm? I laughed again, and George went on, still trying to impress on me the evil of my ways. Job, too, he was coming running, and he was sure you were lost. When I came to meet you and could not see you on the ridge, and then went to the rapid and could not see you there, we began to walk faster and faster, and then to run like crazy people. Poor Job could hardly speak, and neither could I, and out of breath and half crying all the time. Oh, we can never trust you to go away alone again. I said, Very well, George, I'll make a bargain with you. If I can have someone to go with me whenever I want to climb a mountain or do anything else that I think is necessary to do in my work, without any fuss about it, I promise not to go away alone again. So the compact was made. As we walked back to camp, George talked. And you did it so quick, too. Why, I was watching you up on that mountain where you went this afternoon, and you were so busy and running about up there, as busy as a Labrador fly. You looked just like a little girl that was playing at building something, and I thought how you were enjoying yourself. Then the first thing I knew I heard the shots on the other side of the lake. We just looked across the lake and could see nothing, and we wondered about those shots and who could be there. Then Joe said, Look up there on the mountain. 
Then we saw you, but we never thought it was you. Then Joe said, Why, it's a woman. Then we only knew it was you. Even then we could not believe it was you. Whoever would think to see you in the little short steps that you could go away there and so quick, too, why, we couldn't believe it. The men got on to me, too. They said they never saw anything like the way you do. They said they had been on lots of trips before, and where there were women, too. And they said to me they never were on a trip before where the women didn't do what they were told. I laughed again, which George seemed to think was very hard-hearted. He looked quite as if he could not understand such callousness, and said, Yes, you don't care a bit, do you? Whereupon I laughed harder, and this time he did, too, a little. Then he went on, Oh, I just thought I was never going to see you again. I'm never going to forget about it. I was thinking about how you would feel when you knew you were lost. It is an awful thing to be lost. If I had never been lost myself, I wouldn't know what it means to be lost. And what would we do if you got lost or fell on that rapid? Just think what could we do? Why, I could never go back again. How could any of us go back without you? We can't ever let you go any place alone after this. Then after a thoughtful pause, and to see you too the way you look, just as if you would never scare anybody. When we reached camp it was growing dusk. Joe and Gilbert had just finished putting up my tent. They too had been out on the ridge. Though I could not help being amused at the unexpected success of my little plan to be even with them for leaving me alone in the storm, I really was sorry. I had not meant to frighten them so much. They were all very quiet. Their faces, with the exception of Gilbert's, were distinctly pale, and hands trembled visibly. The brandy bottle had but once before been out, but that night, when my bags were brought in, I handed it to George, that they might have a bracer, and be able to eat supper. Later on, I was to learn that the game had not yet been played out. Again the joke was on me. They drank it all. End of chapter 8